Hello and welcome, my dear listeners. We have been absent for a while and left you alone in this cold world. Apologies for that. But now we are back with a brand new episode of Planet Mundus, this time about the Transpolar Sea Route. Today I will talk to Captain David Duke Snyder in Canada about sea ice. Our Hamburg correspondent, Ole Krogsgaard, will present a feature about the history of the Northwest and Northeast passages. And my Swansea colleague Daphne Henning gives us an understanding about the Arctic environment. And at the end of the show, our in-house satirist Jan Willems talks about the ongoing battle between man and nature. I'm Hans Liedke, and you're listening to Planet Monos. Og lige nu her på DR1 sidder Tine Goethe klar til at præsentere TV-avisen. Hier ist das erste deutsche Fernsehen mit der Tagesschau. Captain Duke, you look back on some 30 plus years experience in polar waters and now work as an ice navigator. What is that exactly? Well, there's been uh, many different uh, titles and versions of the name over the year, whether it's been Ice Navigator or Ice Master, Ice Advisor, but we tend to use the phrase Ice Navigator today. My job as an Ice Navigator would be to go on board ships uh, and provide them the experience necessary to uh, operate the ship safely in any sort of sea ice uh, conditions anywhere around the globe. Right. I assume you don't wake up one day and say, hey, I want to become an ice navigator. <laughs> How did you get into that job? Absolutely. Uh, no, it, it, I don't think it's a moment where you get to sit down and say, I'm choosing to become an ice navigator. Uh, for me, uh, I think it was uh, fairly quick. Uh, I uh, began working in the Canadian Arctic in the, the early 1980s and the Mackenzie River. And I found the, the challenge of uh, bridge watch keeping in ice conditions to be uh, quite uh, exciting and uh, exhilarating. Uh, and over the next uh, several seasons, uh, began to, to pick up the, the skill and, and the ability from the, the incredibly good ice masters that I was sailing with at the time. Mm. And uh, found it to be um, the most challenging part of being at sea. Um, besides your navigator position, you also were present on several icebreakers during your career, which I actually find super interesting. How did you get onto those? Uh, how did you get onto those vessels? Well, my first uh, opportunity on icebreakers came uh, while I was serv serving with the Canadian Coast Guard. I then left Canadian Coast Guard for a number of years and worked for a company, um, Can Arctic Shipping Company, that at the time ran the world's highest ice class cargo ship, the MV Arctic. Those were the, the developing years for me in ice between purpose built government icebreaking ships of the Canadian Coast Guard and then cargo ships. Um, so What, what are the differences between an icebreaker and, let's say, a normal cruise ship? Well, there, there's a, a very broad spectrum of capability. Icebreakers themselves, um, they're, they're very highly um, purpose-built ships made for breaking the heaviest ice. The purpose is to uh, support ships that don't have the same ice capability. Commercial ships, on the other hand, are very rarely icebreakers on their own account. Uh, we use the term ice strengthened. Expensive combinations. You know, you add the steel, you add the power, you add all the 
the requirements for an icebreaker makes a cargo ship or a passenger ship very expensive to build, sometimes twice as much as a conventional cargo or passenger ship. So you, you don't see high ice class cargo ships or passenger ships very often. Um, while, while preparing this show, I read about nuclear icebreakers. And I thought, that sounds incredibly dangerous, uh, but also interesting to me. Do you know anything about that? The, the only country that operates nuclear icebreakers is Russia, and they have had for many years. Uh, there's no other countries at, at present that are looking into the uh, moving into nuclear icebreakers. That's pretty much a Russian niche. Uh, the technology, the research that uh, the other traditional icebreaking countries, you know, such as Finland, uh, with their icebreaking construction, uh, pretty much the most prolific icebreaker builders in the world, and others like Canada and the United States, they're looking at conventional power uh, diesel electric systems. Uh, a nuclear ship, it provides certainly uh, the capability for much higher horsepower and, and power outputs, but uh, as you can well imagine, comes with an awful lot of complexity and, uh, and even uh, political baggage. Canada looked at the possibility in the, the 1960s and early 1970s of uh, their then next class of polar icebreaker being nuclear, but uh, the decision was very quickly made that it was, as I said, too complex uh, and uh, the, the costs involved of having the support systems ashore for nuclear capable ships as well as the training and the, and the protection just didn't make it worth it. Russia already and has had for some time the, the capability around it, so they are the only nation that it has ever really seriously considered and actually built nuclear icebreakers. I don't suspect you'll see another country ever build a nuclear icebreaker. Okay, um, let's go back to your role as an ice navigator. What, what do you actually do there, I mean, like in, in every day, or what do you have to, to look out for? If you think about sea ice um, and its hardness, uh, first year ice, you, ice that's only one year old, it's hard and can grow up to a meter, two meters in, in some situations. When it sea ice gets older, it leaches out the salt and becomes much harder. We call it multi-year ice. Mm -hmm. So the most dangerous types of ice that we encounter at sea are multi-year sea ice that's been frozen. It continues to froze year freeze year after year, and the glacial ice. It's always best to take open water, uh, open regions that are long and narrow called leads, and follow them to keep away from the ice. So it's it's a it's a constant dance with the ice. Interesting. One one of the earliest expeditions uh, that tried to traverse the Northwest Passage failed. Um, And one of the sunken ships was just recently found in 2014. Very few bits and pieces were, were found over the year, many years of searching. And the two biggest prizes, perhaps, were hopeful to find the, the remains of the Terror and the Erebus. And a couple of years ago, after many years of very dedicated searching uh, by uh, various Canadian organizations, uh, the wreck of the Erebus uh, was found. Uh, this year, they are searching again, uh, hoping to find uh, the wreck of the terror. Our correspondent Ole has the whole story for us. Du lytter til Planet Mundus. 
the Northwest and the Northeast Passage. For centuries and centuries, they were the stuff of legends. They attracted hordes of brave explorers, who more often than not perished on their icy shores. Back then, at the end of the 15th century, Columbus had just reached America. But he wasn't the only man who dreamed of finding Asia by sailing to the west. In 1497, the Italian and British explorer John Cabot tried to do the same. He aimed a bit higher to the north than Columbus and bumped into Newfoundland, but he thought he'd reached India, so he planted the British flag. But more than 400 years would pass until someone successfully traveled the Northwest Passage. And it's actually only been three years. Remember, the whole point from Cabot's trip was to make a trade route. But only in 2013 did a cargo ship actually manage to cross the Northwest Passage. So why is it so incredibly hard? Well, for starters, it's no small trip. It's over 4,000 kilometers long, and sailors have to navigate thousands of icebergs and an extremely hostile environment with endless winters. It has historically been a bit of a death trap, which might be what attracted explorers to it in the first place. Back in the 19th century, back when men were pistol-dueling, wife-beating, tobacco-chewers, explorers were seen as the ultimate heroes. The way they stared death in the eyes and took a leap into the big unknown made them national icons. Take for example the story of the most famous expedition into the Northwest Passage. It was led by Sir John Franklin in 1848. Are that the countless renditions of a folk song written in his honor tell the story. With a hundred seamen he sailed away To the frozen ocean in the month of May To seek a passage around the moon Where we poor seamen do sometimes go Franklin and his 129 men all died in the Arctic. Hypothermia, starvation, lead poisoning, scurvy, you name it, they died from it. There were even clear signs that the sailors had succumbed to cannibalism. Sixty years after Franklin's failure, a Norwegian explorer, the famous Roald Amundsen, would be the first man to sail through the Northwest Passage. He had the advantage of better technology and a better knowledge of what waited him, and he made it to Alaska in 1906 after a relatively uneventful three-year journey. Amundsen also famously was the first man on the South Pole, but still he wasn't done exploring. In 1918 he wanted to sail on the Northeast Passage as well. The Northeast Passage leads over Russia and Siberia, and this route has been used much more than its northwestern colleague for two reasons. First, it's simply easier to travel, there's less ice and the water is deeper. And secondly, there's always been one nation with a keen interest in using it, Mother Russia. It's been a Russian priority to explore the area and make it saleable ever since the 18th century. Back then the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, spent fortunes on one of the biggest exploration projects of all time, called the Great Northern Expedition. More than 3,000 men were at work on this expedition. It lasted 10 years, and it cost enormous sums, equal to one-sixth of an entire Russian yearly budget. The project was led by Vitus Bering. He was to map Siberia and to reach Alaska in order to figure out whether there was a land connection between Asia and North America. Bering, it's the guy the Bering Street is named after, he died on the expedition. But since then, many have sailed the Northeast Passage and lived to tell about it. That includes the sailors and the commercial ships that are the main users of the passage today. Thanks a lot, Ole. And what, what do you think we can learn from those wrecks, if, if there is anything we could learn? 
Uh, I don't think that the, there is much value to be learned from the, the wrecks for future sailing. Um, the 1850s was a, an age of sail just barely getting into steam power. You know, these two ships uh, actually had steam plants with uh, propellers on them, you know, the, the first of a new technology. Uh, they, they were trapped by the ice because of their, their extremely limited maneuverability and uh, capability. But a couple of hundred years later almost, um, we can build ships that can handle the ice uh, in almost the worst it can deal with. Uh, what we have to do is ensure that we navigate safely. Right, um, better ships. I, I I don't really know if this already exists, but would it make sense to create something like a driver's license for polar suitable ships? Uh, how do you mean? Um, like, like those tests you have for cars, for, ah, you know, well, for road safety and that, but for the Arctic. Well, to start off with, anyone that that uh, operates a ship has to be licensed uh, globally. That's the case. Um, they're called certificates of competency. So there is no international license for ice navigators above normal ship operation, basic navigation and, and ship husbandry. But the, the Nautical Institute, which is a professional organization of mariners, uh, uh, looking at putting in place a certificate program uh, where it will um, accredit marine training institutes to teach a course in ice navigation. This is something that's been developing over the last 10 years uh, because it's been noted that for the most part, incidents that occur to ships in ice uh, related to ice damage are human element caused. Um, where the point where you asked, should we have a license like we do for cars, absolutely does come to play. When you, when you look back on your career, did ice shipping change a lot throughout the years? Shipping in ice certainly has changed, uh, over certainly over the last decades uh, since I've been part of it. Uh, it's predominantly technology around it, the uh, technology that uh, allows us, first off, to get a better idea of what the ice is uh, around the ship and ahead of the ship. Satellite viewing technology has improved dramatically. Uh, other technologies have advanced dramatically in radar, uh, specific systems that sometimes a little further, uh, we can get a very good radar image of the ice, so we're not blind in the fog. And uh, the, the third piece, I think, um, other than uh, technology of, of building better ships, which is, I think, goes without saying, I think the third piece really is the improvement in simulators. Uh, much like cockpit simulators for aircraft, we have simulators, bridge simulators for uh, ship operation. Every year we get better and better at it. Hmm. I, I could imagine with the improvements you just mentioned, um, the sea routes also get more accessible for, let's say, amateurs or, or, peop or people who don't really have a lot of experience on those routes. That's very, very true. And, and, and there's several factors, I think, leading into that. I think the number one factor would be the global climate change. There is no doubt that uh, ice conditions are, are changing and, and incrementally conditions are improving. Um, but uh, when you get uh, improved conditions, you get longer 
tripping seasons, that is seasons with longer seasons without ice, um, you you begin to read in the, the popular press about uh, ice-free Arctic and things like this. It, it brings an awful lot of others uh, to consider entering into an area that uh, in the past decades only the hardiest went into. When I began my work in the Arctic, um, you very quickly knew who everyone was up there because they were experienced companies, experienced operators. Uh, they all knew the Arctic. They all had the ships. But today, uh, because of this increased interest, it's more common to have folks venture into the Arctic with less experience. And, and as you say, amateurs. Uh, when I was with the Canadian Coast Guard, uh, we certainly noticed an increase in in um, uh, very small vessels that were attempting to do Northwest passages and write a book about it. Some of them well prepared, some of them not so. That's part of the reason why the Nautical Institute is moving forward and putting in place an ice navigator training and certification scheme because ignorance can cause horrible tragedy. You know, until my career ends, um, and I retire, there will be ice that can cause damage and you have to be prepared for it. Right, so you don't really have to worry that your job will become obsolete in the near future. Um, apart from tourists, would the Arctic route be a better option for commercial ships to avoid the um, Cape of Good Hope or the Panama Canal? There, there's an awful lot of talk about uh, the Arctic routes being much shorter than uh, the Suez or the Panama. Um, You know, there's press that comes out of Russia constantly about uh, their uh, predictions for the northern sea route. Uh, the bottom line is, though, that the routes are indeed shorter from certain European ports to certain Asian or certain North American ports. Uh, there's still a huge risk in, in both the Northwest Passage and the northern sea route, uh, and, and that risk is the ice. Uh, though it's retreating and the season for shipping is getting longer, uh, the ice is still very, very mobile. And as long as that risk of ice is there, uh, you have to be prepared for that. So you have to consider having ships that are more expensive to build, ice strengthened, that sort of thing. Um, your, your insurance to transit in both those regions is very expensive. And in the Northern Sea Route, you have to pay a very large series of fees for icebreaker support and ice navigation support. So that the savings that, that may be made in fuel pans often get eaten up the uh, export of natural resources. We're seeing more increase in that in and out traffic, but transits, because ice can always slow down your ship or, or cause diversions, it makes it less appealing for container ships. Um, and to build a container ship to ice class would cost quite a bit of money. Okay, so it doesn't really make sense yet. Not yet. Yeah. Uh, increased, increased traffic and other factors contribute to environmental changes in the Arctic. There's no doubt that, that any sort of increase in traffic in any region of the world is going to have some sort of uh, impact on, on local environments and, and indigenous people or locals. Um, I, I think that, generally speaking, uh, the operators in uh, the Arctic and the Antarctic uh, are very well prepared and do everything they can to um, reduce, mitigate, or even... Uh, 
deny the 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 possibility of an, an environmental accident. Um, but uh, with the increase in shipping, um, certainly the risk does increase. Our correspondent Daphne Henning knows more about that. Ceci est Planet Mundus. Ah, the Arctic, a picturesque scene of frozen wilderness. It is a unique, delicate ecosystem home to animals like polar bears and beluga whales. Approximately 4 million people dwell here, most of whom are indigenous to the region. They endure the extremes of the midnight sun in summer to 24 hours of total darkness in the dead of winter, with freezing temperatures that can drop below minus 50 degrees Celsius. It's minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Meandering through this icy wilderness is a vast network of sea channels used for shipping routes. Traditionally, heavy icebreakers were needed to navigate the icy channels, and until the ships were improved, could only break through when milder temperatures reduced the amount of sea ice. Today, however, ships have an easier time to get through the passages, and two factors have contributed to this, technological advances and global warming. The effects of global warming have raised a number of questions when it comes to the passages. How has it affected the Arctic environment? Will polar bears need to cuddle up on smaller ice blocks? Well, certainly lighter sea ice conditions have increased traffic in the passages. That means a whole host of new opportunities for expeditions, including the introduction of Arctic tourism, as some cruise liners look to fill what they see as a gap in the market. The World Wildlife Foundation sees tourism as one way to support the protection of the Arctic environment, with the official position that responsible tourism can be a source of extra income to remote communities. At the same time, we should be cautious about how responsible we are with our Arctic tourism. In a 2007 report, the United Nations Environment Program encouraged care regarding an increase in polar tourism, citing potential pressures put on land, water, wildlife, and people, including concerns about the impact of visitors on the unique cultural practices of the local populations. There is also the potential market for resources. It is speculated that there could be a wealth of natural resources deep below the sea ice. As the ice continues to melt, it may be possible to extract oil and natural gas. The potential for a spill or other accident would have catastrophic consequences for the region and the people and animals who call it home. For example, Greenpeace has documented what they call an ongoing disaster in the Arctic caused by oil spills on land around oil development areas in Russia. A perfect storm of extreme weather conditions and lack of maintenance on pipelines has resulted in over 5 million tons of crude oil being spilled every year, about the equivalent of six deepwater horizons. You know, that little BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico back in 2010. These spills have caused toxic lakes to form, which then permeate the soil, killing vegetation and contaminating groundwater. It has decimated fish populations, hurting the livelihoods of the people who live in surrounding villages, who not only rely on the fish for commerce, but also to sustain themselves. If this weren't enough, in springtime, as the winter ice melts, the oil spillage runs into Arctic waters. There are regulations in place, which the oil and gas industries have largely ignored. Additionally, prevailing wind and sea currents turn the Arctic into a sort of fallout region for pollutants that are transported from around the globe. A reddish-brown fog dubbed the Arctic haze is noticeable in late winter and early springtime, and was first recorded around the time of the Industrial Revolution. This haze is emblematic of the pollution problem plaguing the passages. It is made of the air pollutants that blow in and, according to a study from the University of Utah, can remain in the Arctic atmosphere for up to a month in spring when precipitation levels are low. However, there is conflicting information regarding the exact effects of global warming. Well, whatever man decides to do with this piece of nature, we should be aware of the fact that it remains a fragile ecosystem. After all, we only have one Arctic.
This has been Daphne Henning for Planet Mundus. Tämä on Planet Mundus. Thanks, Daph. Um, Duke, do you think it's possible that there would be positive effects for natives in terms of, um, in terms of that they could do business with tourists or so? Absolutely. You know, Hans, that's, that is the other side of things is, uh, and it's something that, that I think is important that we can't just say no to resource development. We, we have to allow it. We can't say no to cruise ships. We have to allow it, but we have to put regulations around it and guidance around it that, that reduces a negative impact. But on the other hand, the visits of those cruise ships do provide uh, additional employment and income into the communities. It has to be done together. We, we can't just go in and say no, but we can't just go in and say here, dig it out and don't worry. We have to make sure that it's responsibly done. Well, the Arctic doesn't only have to cope with global warming and tourists stealing the polar bear's ice cream, but also the political tensions rising amongst its neighboring countries. Canada, the USA, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Russia have great interests in the Arctic and push their borders to claim land and more importantly, sea miles for themselves. Each coastal country has the right to economically use 200 nautical miles from its coastline and an additional 150 nautical miles grant the rights of ownership for so-called non-living resources. So that basically means resources underground, yes, but no fishing, please. Naturally, this leads to an overlap of territories in the water. This drive reached ridiculous levels here and there. For example, a Russian research submarine once planted a Russian flag at the bottom of the seafloor of the North Pole to claim the territory for themselves. And there's one case of a small island between northern Greenland and Canada. Hans Island. Yeah, that's right. I should probably look up property rights, since it bears my name. Anyway, Canada and Denmark would like to increase their territory by claiming that island. Every now and then a Canadian expedition team embarks to the island, strikes the Danish flag and raises the Canadian one. Soon after, the same happens with the expedition team from Denmark. And I'm not making this up. At least they are nice enough to leave a bottle of spirit for the other team every time they travel to Hans Island. Nevertheless, politics in the Arctic don't only produce needless stories like this. Russia already plans to build up and reopen former Soviet military stations on the northern outskirts of its mainland. Canada and Denmark also increased their military budgets to show more presence around the sea routes. It's all about flexing muscles at this point. Um, back to you, Duke. Sorry for my little sermon. Well, with with greater economic interest, do you see a risk of a new or like a literally cold war in that area? I, I think a lot of the popular press about a new cold war in the Arctic and and uh, military threats in the Arctic is is really hyperbole. Uh, I've been working in the Arctic uh, for now three decades, working with mariners and um, government people from all around the coastal states. As an example, Russia is doing as um, anything out of the norm. Um, they're looking at a global climate change situation, uh, the potential for more traffic along their northern border. They're putting in place uh, facilities to be there for defense of the border and also to provide search and rescue resources out. The, the same uh, could be said of Canada. Uh, we, will, we are building uh, some facilities uh, to forward locate armed forces in our Arctic because the traffic is increasing. It is incumbent on any coastal nation to uh, be in a position to defend 
the one thing that's missed in the, I think, in the um, the popular press, particularly about the Russian military bases, is those bases are are also providing new search and rescue that didn't exist before. There has to be a conflict to start it, and really, the coastal states have been working consistently together over the years, um, coordinating their regulations and coordinating uh, their activities. And, collaboration and working together. These are the things that are in place today to ensure that uh, things don't go hot. Thanks a lot for your time, Duke. Would you like to add anything I, I forgot to ask? We have to understand that, that um, in the Arctic and the Antarctic, in the polar regions in general, um, regardless uh, of an awful lot of hyperbole about global warming and change, understanding that, that the climates are changing, understanding that um, overall ice cover is reducing incrementally every year the the polar regions remain vastly different uh, than any other part of the world the ice remains a risk uh, even through the summer and to blithely enter into these regions and shipping in any way expecting to romp through with without seeing ice uh, or right or without having ice as a, a risk um, is foolish to say the least. Flopping off and saying, ah, I'm going to go up to the Arctic for a summer cruising, it's not that easy. Okay, Hans, have a good night. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay, bye-bye. Take care, bye. Now, we are almost at the end of our show, but we don't want to miss out on our funny man, Jan Willems, and he has some serious plans about the Arctic. This is Planet Mundus. Dear listeners of Planet Mundus, tis a brave new world that we are living in. What you have just heard about, the actually navigable Northwest Passage, is so much more than just a new route for ships. It is a symbol. It is a gift that Mother Nature herself hands us on a silver platter, saying, Go on, humanity. Never stop chasing your dreams and live large. As Ole explained earlier in this show, the Arctic has always been a thorn in the flesh of mankind, taking the lives of many of our biggest explorers. Then... In 1912, the sinking of the Titanic due to an iceberg was the official declaration of the Cold War that the Arctic waged on mankind. But over the course of the past hundred years, the human race fought back. Regardless of our internal conflicts, we stood united in the pursuit of one goal, global warming. The opening of the Northwest Passage makes the final victory of civilization over nature. How do you like that, you stupid polar bears? This summer will bring another important demonstration of man's superiority. The first cruise ship for the super-rich will assume its touristic pleasure cruise for the Northwest Passage. This is like an anti-LGBT parade through gay hotspot Christopher Street in New York, with the only difference that polar bears can't glitter-bomb our mighty ships. Jerks. Obviously, this can only be the first step. In the years to come, more and more cruises shall roam the Arctic waters in their quest to destroy one of nature's last fortresses for the entertainment of mankind's top 1%. But I say we have to go even further than that. We have to build a beacon of human development and technology, a gargantuan project that will make it into the ranks of the seven wonders of the world. I propose to build a transpolar highway, built from the garbage that we love to chuck into the sea so much. Grocery bags, oil canisters, six-pack rings, Unite and build a new Via Appia that future generations will glide down on their segways. The Inuit might have 67 words for snow, 
but they will not have one for the pompous monstrosity that comes to destroy the last untouched bit of their habitat. As soon as we succeed to build the transpolar highway, we shall move on to the next daring projects of dreams and madness. Why not build a skiing paradise in Dubai? Or a, a, a nuclear reactor on a tsunami-prone coast? Why don't we send winter Olympics to subtropical resorts and summer sports to a desert where only artificial domes of glass and steel and giant air conditioners can provide an atmosphere that makes life possible? I truly believe that the sky is the limit for humanity's aspirations to break and subjugate nature to our will. Tis indeed a brave new world we live in. This is Jan Willems for Planet Mundus. Planet Mundus. Wonderful, Jan. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the show and you learned something. We always appreciate your feedback. And don't forget to like us if you like us. Also make sure you follow us on Facebook and Twitter for our latest updates. My name is Hans Liedke for Planet Mundus. Bye. Just...